Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Today we're going to be talking about a book on politics by Mike Allen and Evan Thomas. It's called The Right Fights Back. It's an ebook, ebook only, so you're going to have to get a Kindle or an iPad or some type of e-reader in order to read it. That's what I had to do. I was uh, strictly a paper person before this book. But what Mike Allen tries to do in his book is bring us straight up, day-to-day, real-time, inside scoop on what's going on in the political campaigns. In the past, you had books like The Making of the President by Theodore White, a great series on on campaigns, or The Boys on the Bus by Timothy Krauss, even Game Change, books about the campaigns that came out after the campaigns were finished. In this, it's going to be a series of four books. This is the first one of the four. This book comes out while the campaign's still going on. In fact, it came out even before voting started in Iowa. So it's a different type of book to give you a real-time look at what's going on inside the political campaigns that help shape policies in Washington. I hope you enjoy my interview with Mike Allen. Mike Allen, welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. It's great to have you. Uh, I'd like to start with our traditional question here, which is, how did you come to write this book? And tell us a little bit about yourself. The Admiral Stockdale question, right? Uh, thank <laughs> you very much uh, for... <laughs> uh, hopefully we'll do a little uh, better, but uh, thank you for these great conversations you have about the great uh, issues of the day, and Evan Thomas, uh, the great Newsweek writer, John Meacham, the great Newsweek editor, had the idea of taking the old Newsweek project, which so many of your listeners remember as the -the behind-the-scenes story of the election that usually came out in a special issue of the magazine the day or two after the election, and then a book. They said in deference to the times, why not do it in real time? And so that's what we tried to do with the, uh, the first installment of four that we're going to have in this ebook series, uh, Politico Playbook 2012. The opening one is The Right Fights Back, and uh, this is our sort of first peek behind the curtain of the campaign designed to give your listeners, the sort of people who are passionate about politics, uh, give them a little more than they'll get in the daily coverage. Yeah, I love those Newsweek books. I remember the 2004 campaign when there was a story in the Newsweek subsequent to to the election book about Howard Wolfson, who started on the Kerry campaign on a Monday, went to lunch on a Wednesday, and then never came back because it was so dysfunctional. Is that the kind of story you're trying to get in these books? Uh, Sure, and we haven't uh, found any campaigns like that so far. But what we found was that the Romney campaign began almost before, even before, the McCain campaign ended that very shortly after Governor Romney got out of the 2008 race. Uh, part of the reason that he so quickly endorsed John McCain was that he smartly knew that that would sort of help him in whatever laid ahead. And then he was, uh, as you remember, and many of your listeners will remember, a very aggressive, tireless surrogate for Senator McCain, even when times looked tough, even doing events for him the morning of the election. He had actually a heavy schedule uh, the morning of the election doing a bunch of uh, radio. And 
then after uh, President Obama uh, won so big, and that's where the title The Right Fights Back came from. It was John Meacham's brilliant idea to start on the day after Obama was elected, when Republicans were flat on their back, when it looked like there was a total reordering, reordering of America's politics. And even then, already, uh, Governor Romney was looking ahead to what he might do. At the time when everybody says that Obama was such a transformational figure, uh, we report that he said to one of his friends, give him a year. And the idea was, let's see what happens. And one thing we picked up from numerous interviews with people close to Governor Romney was that he was not going to run some sort of kamikaze campaign. He wasn't going to run just to run. He was going to run if he had a chance to win. And they very quickly calculated that he would. Uh, and there were two conditions that would make for an ideal Romney uh, race, and they got both of them. One was a multi-candidate field where all the fire wouldn't be on them from day one, where the uh, attention would be a little bit diffuse, and of course they got that. And second, a race that would be about the economy, that would be about jobs, that would be in Governor Romney's wheelhouse as an economic fixer, as a turnaround guy. One top Romney person even said to us, if the race was about jobs in the economy, he probably would win. If it wasn't, he probably wouldn't. So the Romney folks got exactly the conditions they were hoping for. So on the one hand, you say that the Romney campaign started even before 2008 ended. On the other hand, you also say that Romney was not committed to running as late as 2009-2010. That's right. Uh, what he told uh, the people close to him uh, was that uh, he was not set in stone, that he was not going to do it if it was not likely to be successful or if there wasn't a good opening. So uh, the uh, team split up a little bit. They, uh, uh, a couple of his top advisors once started their own uh, political consulting firm and uh, helped get uh, Senator Scott Brown elected Republican of Massachusetts in Ted Kennedy's seat. Um, he got a pack going. He wrote the book. Uh, we're, we're told that the book that – Governor Romney wrote was a big part of getting ready for this campaign, both um, in his mind and um, also uh, as far as uh, in a very practical way. And that is the book that uh, Governor Romney wrote, No Apologies, uh, gave him something that he could continually refer to in debates, and we're told it gave him a real sense of personal uh, mission. Uh, we we're told that uh, they got a ghostwriter for him. At first, who was supposed to sort of help him uh, with the chapters, uh, Governor Romney was so intent on doing it himself that the ghostwriter got a little frustrated. Uh, there wasn't much for him to do. He sort of became a researcher, and he, be, he eventually left the project. Uh, one person uh, very close to Governor Romney told us, you can tell that Mitt wrote it himself from the tortured syntax. <laughs> so this <laughs> was uh, very much his own uh, – very much his own creation. Yeah, that ghostwriter story was one of my favorite stories in the book, and I was going to mention it. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, any chance you could tell our listeners who said ghostwriter was? Uh, I don't think we named uh, who it was, but uh, what was interesting to me was that again and again, uh, people, the very closest people to Governor Romney, mentioned uh, the book as a seminal event to him. I think it was partly uh, sort of gave him an outlet during the quiet years, the out years, um, uh, during a time of personal trial. It was the time as you're uh, 
uh, listeners and uh, followers will remember uh, that uh, Mrs. Romney, uh, health issues had come up, and so it was a, it was a tough time. And it gave him something to focus on, uh, but it really gave him sort of a new sense of mission, and it gave something that he could point to. So we've heard him in several debates refer to the book, but that could almost be to a fault because people want to know that Governor Romney believes some, something himself, believes uh, that he has a core. And uh, in a Parade magazine interview, which was very positive for him, it was a great picture of the governor's family on the cover, uh, totally played into uh, the strategy that uh, Politico had reported of uh, Governor Romney playing up his family in a subtle reminder that Newt Gingrich can't uh, port, paint the same uh, portrait of his family. So at the time when they were worried about Gingrich, playing up the family was a big part of their strategy. And in that parade interview with David Gergen, which was a great interview, he asked him, he said, you know, George Will calls you the pretzel candidate. David Pluff says you don't have a core. What do you say about that? And Governor Romney pointed to his book, and that's what he's been doing. But uh, that wasn't really the answer to the question. People wanted a little more personal answer. But uh, I can tell you, for someone who's driven by data, who's uh, sort of driven by structure, uh, the book was a big event in Mitt Romney's world. Yeah, that really shows. You mentioned Newt Gingrich, but the book also shows, your book shows, that Perry was the one they were worried about. Can you talk a little bit about how Perry was such a supernova but then kind of fizzled? Yeah, it looks like uh, Rick Perry, as you'll remember, might have the chance to sort of tap in to the uh, Christian conservatives, the social conservatives, uh, in a way that uh, Mitt Romney probably wasn't going to. I think maybe one of the most difficult days of the early campaign was when Mitt, oh, excuse me, when uh, Rick Perry got in, and you can remember he totally stole the thunder from Michelle Bachman, who won the. Iowa straw poll, and then the very next day, uh, uh, Rick Perry used the occasion of the uh, Red State uh, Blogger Conference in uh, Georgia to get into the race, and uh, people thought that uh, that or uh, it was even the same day of it, and so um, uh, people thought that uh, Rick Perry had a real chance to really sort of steal the race. He never did, in part because uh, in the debates. Uh, he showed that he wasn't ready. And uh, we report from a former fundraiser who used to travel with Governor Perry, but he didn't really didn't prepare that uh, on the plane you'd see him on his iPad looking at family pictures or, or telling jokes, but that he, he wasn't really studying, wasn't really doing the homework. And um, as you know, uh, uh, President George W. Bush was smart about knowing that you don't have to over-prepare, that he knew that wasn't going to be his gift. He went in and aced one of his early debates, even without like spending a ton of time in the policy books. But but Rick Perry needed that preparation, and he came out in the debates, and it just made it harder for people who wanted to support him uh, to do so when he wasn't ready on some of those questions. Yeah, for, for the record, Bush used to spend a lot of time in his debate prep book, even if not in debate prep sessions, because I would get the marked up copies and have to make all the changes. Uh, but you, you say that Perry didn't prepare enough for the debates, but part of it, you suggest, was Carney's fault, his his advisor, Carney, who underestimated the importance of debates because they weren't so important in Texas. Can you talk a little bit about Carney and his misassessment there? Yeah, well, more broadly speaking to the Perry campaign, I think they a little bit uh, misjudged or were a little bit optimistic about what the opening 
would be. And of course, this uh, ultimately goes to the candidate, but they thought that he would come out and that people would love him because in Texas, people did love him. And so he didn't really have to earn it uh, the way you have to on the national stage. So I think they were a little bit surprised by some of the pushback they got. And a very early indication of this was when Governor Governor, uh, Perry had a meeting in Florida with Al Hoffman, one of the most sought after, most courted of the Florida financiers. In fact, one of them, as you know, one of the most courted Republican um, uh, donors and uh, fundraisers in the country. He's crosswise with the Romney people. He wasn't going to go with Romney. So this was a huge opportunity for Governor Perry. And it turns out he totally blew it. Uh, uh, for the book, we were uh, told about a meeting he had uh, with Al Hoffman where uh, Mr. Hoffman came prepared with a bunch of questions, very specific policy questions about education, energy, other issues. And Rick Perry wasn't prepared to answer them. And furthermore, one thing we learned is that these uh, big donors are prepared uh, to are uh, accustomed to having a little bit of an audition. That uh, sometimes they'll travel on the plane of a candidate that they might endorse. Uh, Al Hoffman sort of subtly suggested this. Uh, Rick Perry didn't take him up on it right at the moment, and we're told that he went back to his plane and. He and uh, Carney were joking about it, and they said, well, I guess that's not going to happen. Uh, we're told that later, in fact, that they did extend that invitation to Al Hoffman, who didn't uh, take them up on it for medical reasons, and he wound up being on the sidelines. But it was a real blown opportunity, and it was a sign of how difficult it is to get in so late. You know, I think the Perry people liked the sort of element of surprise that they had, uh, liked the fact that uh, that they uh, got in uh, uh, trying to show that you could run in a new way. But they found that people who give big endorsements in these races, people who give big money in these races, are used to having not just one meeting with a candidate, but multiple meetings with a candidate. And they just weren't able to do that. They just didn't have the time. And so I think their Texas fundraising went well, but I think they didn't raise the money they hoped to around the country, partly because of that. Well, one of the great stories you tell is that Ambassador Hoffman wanted Perry to come to his gorgeous mansion, and Perry wanted to meet in some drab hotel conference room instead. Uh, is, uh, right. Just yeah. to his yeah, case, no, and, um, no, it was a good point. And another thing uh, that we learned was that uh, Rick Perry's back surgery really was a factor early in the campaign. That um, you know It had been reported by the Texas press that he'd – had back surgery and even gotten a stem cell uh, implant uh, before he announced in the race. But what we learned was it really affected him that he couldn't stand that long. He really couldn't stand for more than 30 minutes without shooting pain. Uh, We found out that uh, when he was doing uh, fundraising events that um, they could only schedule uh, 50 photos, uh, clicks, uh, as you know they call them, uh, with – uh, big donors when they really would have liked to schedule 75 or more just because you couldn't stand for that long. And so like that almost certainly was a factor in his early debate performances that he was just in pain, that it, it was um, uh, the debates ran an hour and a half, two hours. And uh, so uh, that was definitely something that hurt him, that there was nothing he could have done anything about. The listeners know when uh, presidents do holiday parties, Christmas parties, or, or whatever, they're doing 200 to 300 clicks. So only 50 clicks is a pretty low number. Uh, one guy who's kicking himself now, according to your your book, is uh, Tim Pawlenty. 
you say that he kind of le- left a little early, that he had one senior staffer, Nick Ayers, I say senior, but he's pretty young, who was a little rough on the staff, who who Palenti feels misled him on whether he would have debt or not. Can you talk about the Palenti heirs relationship and whether Palenti should have stayed in or not? Yeah. Uh, what, we, what we could uh, learn from the Palenti example is that you don't need a big staff. And in fact, if he had just ridden around all summer in a station wagon, he might have uh, actually, or all fall in a station wagon, he might actually still be in it. Right now, he got out, ironically, because he didn't want to be in debt, but in fact, he wound up with some campaign debt anyway. He felt like he'd been uh, misled about that. You know, uh, our conversation with Governor Pawlenty was one of the most fascinating conversations we had uh, with this book. And uh, with, I think, maybe only two exceptions, I did uh, a couple long interviews with uh, Speaker Gingrich on the telephone, and I did a long and a very central and revealing interview with a confidential source on the telephone that uh, that you'll see in the book. But aside from that, it was all done face-to-face, just sitting down with people in person with no clock, no one to interrupt, and just talking to them about their story. And it's just, it's an underreported, excuse me, underused or underappreciated approach to reporting. And uh, one of the most interesting interviews we did with, was with Governor Plenty. We sat down at Evan Thomas's uh, very nice uh, dining room table in Northwest Washington, and we said to Governor Plenty, you know, there's only a few people on the planet who really know what it's like, who know what it's like to have us chasing you around, to have John King yelling at you. What's it really like? And he was very candid. It was very fascinating, including him talking about, you mentioned his uh, relationship with his his manager, where I, I think he, he uh, did feel uh, misled about the possibility that they would go into debt. But even pulling back the camera from that, talking about uh, that very rough debate where people expected him to take a shot at Newt Romney, excuse me, expected him to take a shot at Governor Romney. Romney the him, Romney care debate. Yeah, Obamney care. Yeah, right, right. And <clears throat> The, the, he had said it on Fox News Sunday and uh, the debate shortly after that. People expected him to uh, take the shot again, and he didn't. And it was taken as uh, an impugning of his manhood, like his, his donations fell off. And we said to him, what happened? And he talked about all the things that happen in the split second after you're asked a question in a debate, and he compared it to a weekend golfer who gets too much advice, and he, he even referred to it as his swing thoughts. And so, all at once, you're trying to think about, okay, what am I supposed to say for the base? I'm supposed to take a shot at Obama. I'm thinking about what my campaign manager told me. I'm thinking about what my wife told me. I'm thinking about running into Mitt Romney backstage moments ago. I'm thinking about what my style coach has told me. We report in the book that he had two you know, TV coaches who were uh, paid to, to teach him how to uh, you know, uh, do better on TV. So he's thinking of these things all at once. And so you could see how someone could freeze or choke when they're thinking about all those things. And it makes you realize uh, how much uh, more difficult a great debate performance is than it looks like. And you see Governor Romney really preparing for this. You see him, if you watch uh, the wide shot of the 
stage in debates, and uh, there's a couple coming up uh, in New Hampshire uh, just uh, in the next uh, in the next few days, next ten days. Uh, there's, believe it or not, a debate on a Saturday night on ABC, and then the next morning the candidates are doing a meet the press debate uh, live at 9 a.m. So it's quick. Uh, turnaround there. But what you see there is that there's only one candidate on the stage who never takes notes, who never looks around, but who always looks at the person who's speaking, both so that he'll know when someone's about to take a shot at him and also when they'll be know so he'll know when there's an opportunity for him to take a shot. And of course that's Mitt Romney, who always keeps his head in the game by looking at the person. And he's the only one of the candidates that consistently does that. And it shows. It really shows. The guy is very good in debates, and he, he's sort of like the, the big guy on the block. If he loses any one of the debates, it would be disastrous for him. So he has to be that good in all of them. It's, yeah, no, I think uh, that's right. And I think one of the – and I'd be interested in your view of this, but I think one of the uh, moments when we started to see Newt Gingrich fade was – when in the first debate after he'd searched in the polls, he didn't own the stage, that um, there was really no winner, uh, that uh, Mitt Romney uh, sort of uh, stayed in the game and uh, and uh, sort of kept Rom- kept uh, Newt Gingrich at bay, whereas I think if uh, Newt Gingrich in that debate had really overshadowed Romney, the next uh, few days and weeks and perhaps months would have been very different. Yeah, you're totally right about that, and I actually wrote something on this issue. But what happened there was the Gingrich sort of flat debate performance, and we all know he's good at debates, came not long after the disaster of his Greek trip and his staff deserting him. So he was a little flummoxed, and I thought that contributed to his poor performance in that debate. Yeah, the the uh, Gingrich staff, uh, 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 the Gingrich staff defection was one of the most uh, fascinating uh, stories we learned about. In the campaign, you know, everybody knew that they, his staff had mostly left and they mostly turned up with uh, Perry. Uh, but uh, what we learned in the, in the debate, what, excuse me, what we learned for the book was that uh, they were left in part because they were very unhappy with Callista Gingrich, that they uh, were very unhappy with the candidate's wife, that she, uh, they felt she interfered with their ability to do their jobs, that she wouldn't let them stay overnight in Iowa. That she wouldn't um, let him uh, go on the road for a long period of time, and of course you have to be out there to uh, get elected. And what uh, Speaker Gingrich did was double down. He told us that he had the, that he had uh, Mrs. Gingrich on uh, most of the key email uh, exchanges of the campaign, and uh, that uh, he empowered her when the others left. And that uh, that was part of his comeback campaign. Uh, he wanted to prove that you can run in a different way. He said watching his new campaign would be like watching Ray Kroc build McDonald's or watching Sam Walton build Walmart. So as usual, uh, the speaker didn't want it for confidence, uh, but uh, he did correctly predict uh, the surge he had. Uh, the question is, can he revive it? Uh, he had it. He lost it. It's tough to revive in politics. Yeah. You talk about the staff tension with the Gingrich folks, but also with Michelle Bachman and Ed Rollins. And anybody who's followed politics for a long time, as you have knew, had to know that this Ed Rollins, Michelle Bachman thing wasn't going to work, but they tried it anyway. What, what do you think about that whole relationship? 
Yeah, I got off on the wrong foot. Uh, uh, Ed Rollins uh, met with uh, Michelle Bachman and uh, right before a Fox magazine appearance, and she had to uh, she stuck him with the check for the coffee, which he uh, uh, didn't like. Uh, and uh, he at one point finally said to her, "I don't need this. Uh, I'm leaving." And uh, he said, "But I know this is going to be a big story, so I'll give you some grace. I'll give you." Uh, 30 days notice, and she called him back the next day, uh, we're told, and said, um, if you're going to leave, you might as well just leave now. Uh, so that was on, uh, went out on a tough note. Uh, uh, one of the little things we learned about the Michelle Bachman campaign was the, the phantom campaign that way before the Iowa straw poll, that uh, she had a bus, the Michelle Bachman bus, that was driving around Iowa, and a lot of the time it didn't have her on it, which is just her bus. She was back in D.C. Uh, voting. That's great. Uh, so um, so uh, thank you so much for this uh, chance to talk. I really appreciate this, and I appreciate uh, your uh, willingness to bring substance and policy uh, to the people who are so uh, passionate about it. So uh, thank you for your kindness and uh, letting us talk about uh, our ebook. It's uh, on Nook, Kindle, iPad, uh, $2.99, uh, and it's with the great Evan Thomas. It was such a treat to be able to work with him. Uh, I didn't know him before this, just got to know him during He has an amazing gift for uh, finding the needle in the haystack, which I'm so grateful for. And so it's uh, Politico 2012, The Right Fights Back. It's the first part, and Teddy, I think that the second part is going to be out in early March, so right after Super Tuesday is the idea. All right, well, i got a Kindle just so I could buy these. Amen. All right, thank you. Uh, thanks for a great conversation. You've been listening to an interview with the fast-talking, fast-typing Mike Allen, the master aggregator as profiled in the New York Times magazine from Politico. He writes the Daily Playbook, which is must-read here in Washington. And he's now written Playbook 2012, The Right Fights Back. It's part of a series of e-books that's going to show you what's going on inside the campaigns and give you real insight into the the behind-the-scenes stuff that affects what happens on the outside of the campaign. So, for example, we all know that Rick Perry had a tough time in the debates. But if you read Mike Allen's book, you will see why he had a tough time, why he didn't devote the resources and the time necessary to making sure that he'd be a good debater. It's those kinds of insights that are extremely helpful. And, of course, it is politics that help determine policy and what happens in our country. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Mike Allen. In order to read the book, you may have to switch from paper to electronic, which I had to do to get this book. And it's one of a series of four books that are going to be coming out on the campaign. I hope you read the books, and as always, this is Tevi Troy signing off for new books in public policy and suggesting that you keep reading.